Imagine an old pipe that has started to narrow because of buildup of rust and calcium in the water. You might not notice that flow is limited when using a lower demand system, like the bathroom faucet. But with a higher demand system, like a garden hose, you start to notice that the flow is a relative trickle compared to what you need. Here, we have a problem with low supply relative to a higher demand, where the pipes are the coronary arteries and the narrowing represents coronary artery disease. Today, our patient has stable coronary artery disease and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, A Narrowing in the Pipes, An Approach to Stable Coronary Artery Disease. All right, time for a minute physiology. Ischemic coronary artery disease, or CAD, is the narrowing of the blood vessels that supply the heart. The narrowing itself can cause temporary or permanent myocardial ischemia. The most common cause of CAD is atherosclerosis, where the deposition of fatty plaques in the vessel wall leads to progressive narrowing or stenosis of the coronary arteries. As blood flow is impaired, ischemia develops, which is sometimes felt as a symptom known as angina. The degree of narrowing necessary to cause ischemia varies with myocardial oxygen demand. By contrast, acute coronary syndrome refers to when a plaque rupture leads to platelet activation and the coagulation cascade causes the formation of an acute occlusive thrombus in the affected vessel. In rarer cases, myocardial ischemia can also be caused by coronary vasospasm, also known as variant angina or formerly called Prinz Metals angina. CAD has a spectrum of presentations from silent ischemia to angina to acute coronary syndrome and even sudden cardiac death. Now, let's discuss the approach to the patient with stable coronary artery disease with a case. You are asked to see a 54-year-old gentleman in clinic, and he tells you he has an eight-month history of retrosternal chest discomfort, which occurs with exercise and improves with rest. It hasn't changed much over the past eight months, and he states that it is fairly consistent after one block of moderate exercise. He has a history of hypertension, which is managed well with hydrochlorothiazide, 12.5 milligrams PO daily. Otherwise, he's healthy. Perhaps the most important part about assessing a patient's chest pain is the history. Of course, assessing a patient with chest pain at all is tricky. There are so many reasons that people have chest pain. So the first step is to try and narrow your differential. Is this really ischemic chest pain? Or could it be any of the other chest pain mimickers, amongst the most common being GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease, significant valvular disease like aortic stenosis, a pulmonary embolism, or even just musculoskeletal pain? So there are a few typical features to consider that can help increase the likelihood that your patient's chest pain is of a cardiac cause. Typical anginal chest pain is substernal or retrosternal chest pain, and it is discomfort that is provoked by activity or stress and relieved by rest or nitroglycerin. Anginal equivalents are symptoms that are different from the typical anginal pain we just described, but actually still occur because of underlying ischemic coronary artery disease. These symptoms can include dyspnea, fatigue, diaphoresis, 
or pain in a site other than the chest, for instance, the jaw or neck or shoulder. Anginal equivalents are more common in women, the elderly, and patients with diabetes. Atypical symptoms of rest pain without exertional symptoms, young age, or minimal risk factors are less likely to represent true angina and should decrease your pretest probability that this patient has ischemic coronary artery disease. Of course, other risk factors also change the likelihood of clinically significant coronary artery disease. Consider that your patient's age, sex, risk factors, and the character of their chest pain may all contribute to increasing or decreasing your pretest probability. Male sex and advanced age increase the risk of CAD. Cardiac risk factors, including hypertension, diabetes, dyslipidemia, obesity, smoking, and family history of early onset CAD in a first degree relative will also increase your pretest probability. Various illicit drugs, in particular stimulant use or depressant withdrawal, can also provoke symptoms of angina, but these are more likely to be acute symptoms. These symptoms are often related to the substance itself rather than atherosclerotic CAD and do not have the predictable pattern of stable angina. Stable angina, by definition, occurs in a predictable pattern that does not occur at rest and is without changes in frequency, duration, or severity. Unstable angina, which is a variant of an acute coronary syndrome, includes new onset angina, rest pain, or angina that is increasing in frequency, duration, or severity. This should be investigated and treated as an acute coronary syndrome. For this podcast, we are going to focus on stable and low moderate risk disease. The Canadian Cardiovascular Society classification system is used to grade angina severity. In class one, symptoms only occur with strenuous, rapid, or prolonged exertion. In class two, there is slight limitation of ordinary activity, with symptoms occurring with vigorous physical activity, for instance, walking or climbing stairs rapidly, walking two or more blocks on the level, or climbing more than one flight of stairs at a normal pace in a normal condition. In class three, there is marked limitation of ordinary activity, with symptoms occurring when walking one to two blocks on the level and climbing just one flight of stairs at a normal pace in normal condition. In class four, patients either have rest pain or are unable to perform any physical activity without symptoms. Once you've reviewed the patient's history, you can take a look at the most recent guidelines from the Canadian Cardiovascular Society. They have a great table that helps categorize the patient's presentation as low, moderate, or high risk, based on the patient's age, sex, and character of their chest pain. We will also have this table posted on our website. Let's talk about our physical exam. As always, the first thing you want to do with any patient is to assess stability. Ensure that you check your patient's vitals. Anyone with significant tachycardia, hypotension, or hypoxia should make you suspicious of something more severe than stable angina. You'll want to do a full head-to-toe exam for a patient with chest pain. Remember that in addition to your job of ruling in coronary artery disease, 
you also want to rule out other etiologies of chest pain. On your exam, you particularly want to look for any murmurs and signs of congestive heart failure. CHF on exam can manifest as crackles or decreased breath sounds on respiratory exam, JVP distension, ascites, positive hepatojugular reflex, or leg edema. Obstructive valvular disease, such as aortic stenosis, can also cause chest pain that can clinically present similarly to stable CAD. You'll also want to do a full vascular exam to look for signs of peripheral arterial disease. Once you've completed your history and physical, a critical step in the assessment of chest pain is determining if the patient should be referred to the emergency department or if they are safe to be worked up in the outpatient setting. This will be dependent on your clinical suspicion and pretest probability. Any patient with even suspected unstable angina should be referred to the emergency department for immediate assessment. Any patient with new chest pain or a patient with known angina coming in with pain that does not respond to three doses of nitroglycerin should also be referred to the emergency department. Of course, any patient with positive biomarkers, such as an elevated troponin, new ECG changes, or other high-risk features, such as signs of congestive heart failure, syncope, or hypoxia, should also be referred to the emergency department immediately. Are you interested in storytelling about healthcare? Then take a listen to our friends at The Nocturnist, a medical storytelling podcast that collects deeply personal missives from healthcare workers across North America. They've just launched the second installment of their series, Stories from a Pandemic, which delves into the inner lives of the medical professionals fighting COVID-19. The Nocturnist shares stories from both inside and outside the hospital, contemplates the value of art and meaning-making during these times, unearths doctors' and nurses' dreams and nightmares, and explores the hope, joy, and complexity of the vaccine rollout. While we're all eager to move on from the pandemic, this series lays the groundwork for processing what the pandemic has revealed about our healthcare system and ourselves. Check out The Nocturnist at thenocturnist.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about our investigations. The first step in the workup for stable CAD is a resting ECG. The resting ECG helps to identify any baseline abnormalities, and this can help guide your next step in testing, which we'll talk about a bit later in this episode. ECG findings that are representative of ischemia include Q waves, T wave inversions, or STT wave changes. Changes to the QRS morphology, such as a new left bundle branch block, may also be representative of ischemic CAD. However, keep in mind that a normal ECG does not rule out stable CAD. Also, if your patient has new ECG changes and is having ongoing chest pain, they should be going to the emergency department for evaluation. Here we're talking about existing changes to a patient's ECG with no current symptoms in your patient. There are a number of tests to diagnose and assess the severity of CAD including stress tests, cardiac imaging, and coronary angiography. The choice of tests depends on a few things. First, what is your pretest probability of CAD? Second, are there any ECG abnormalities? And third, is your patient able to exercise? 
Now, we'll begin by saying that there are a lot of nuances to choosing the right test for a patient. And sometimes doing one test will lead to another test with higher specificity and sensitivity. However, we're going to outline some broad strokes to consider when choosing stress tests in this podcast. First, if you have a low pretest probability and your patient has a normal ECG and is able to exercise, an exercise stress test is the test of choice. A patient who is not able to exercise should undergo either a pharmacologic stress echocardiogram or a persantine MIBI. In general, those with significant ECG changes or paced rhythms or a left bundle branch block should have a MIBI. Those without any ECG changes can undergo a stress echocardiogram. Now, if your patient is able to exercise, but already has an abnormal ECG, for instance, existing ST depressions, digoxin toxicity, ventricular preexcitation, or left ventricular hypertrophy, you'll want to do a test that does not rely on ECG changes to help you diagnose CAD. Patients without a left bundle branch block or ventricular pacing can undergo either an exercise stress echo or an exercise myocardial perfusion imaging. Those with a left bundle branch block or a ventricular paced rhythm should undergo nuclear perfusion imaging. You might ask, why do an exercise test at all? Remember that in addition to providing information about coronary arteries, patients can also demonstrate exercise capacity and symptoms in addition to ECG, echocardiogram, or coronary artery flow changes. In addition to any stress testing, all patients should have an assessment of their ejection fraction with an echocardiogram. As atherosclerosis is the most common cause of CAD, you'll want to also do a review of the patient's metabolic risk factors. This includes an HbA1c for diabetes, lipid panel for dyslipidemia, and creatinine for chronic kidney disease. Optimization of these risk factors will also help prevent progression of CAD. So how should we manage a patient with stable CAD? We'll start off by discussing lifestyle modifications and prevention of disease progression. All patients with CAD should receive education and counseling on regular exercise, which is defined as 30 to 60 minutes of moderate intensity exercise three to five days per week. Dietary changes, for instance, adhering to a Mediterranean or DASH diet, and if relevant, weight reduction and smoking cessation. Furthermore, patients should receive education and targeted management strategies at controlling risk factors like hypertension and diabetes. Patients with established CAD based on diagnostic testing should receive medical therapies aimed at reducing the risk of progression, such as antiplatelet agents and lipid-lowering therapy. Unless there is a contraindication, all patients should receive aspirin, or if allergic to aspirin, clopidogrel. Statins are recommended for all patients, regardless of their baseline LDL level. The target LDL level is less than 2 or a 50% reduction from the patient's initial baseline LDL. ACE inhibitors or ARBs should be considered in patients with left ventricular dysfunction, prior myocardial infarction, diabetes, or hypertension. Furthermore, patients with hypertension should receive additional antihypertensives as appropriate to meet their target as established by the Hypertension Canada guidelines. 
It is important to note that the ASPRI trial, which was published in 2018, demonstrated no appreciable differences in outcomes for primary prevention with aspirin. Therefore, unless a patient has documented coronary artery disease with either diagnostic testing or a prior event, such as an NSTEMI or a STEMI, an antiplatelet agent alone for primary prevention is not recommended for treatment. For patients with symptomatic but stable CAD, antiangenal therapies such as beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and nitrates are the mainstay of treatment. Beta blockers work by reducing cardiac contractility and heart rate, thus reducing myocardial oxygen demand and increasing myocardial oxygen supply by lengthening diastole. Beta blockers are effective in reducing anginal symptoms, improving exercise tolerance, and also have a mortality benefit in patients with a prior MI. Calcium channel blockers act as antianginals by reducing contractility and causing both coronary and peripheral vasodilation, thereby decreasing myocardial oxygen demand and increasing supply. If using a calcium channel blocker, long-acting non-dihydropyridine, for instance, diltiazem or verapamil calcium channel blockers, or second-generation dihydropyridines, for instance, amlodipine, are preferred. However, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers have a negative inotropic effect and therefore need to be used with caution in patients with a low ejection fraction, as they might decrease the patient's cardiac output. Nitrates also improve myocardial supply and demand by causing coronary and peripheral vasodilatation. Calcium channel blockers and long-acting nitrates may be used in combination with beta blockers or as alternative monotherapies for patients who do not tolerate beta blockers. For patients with stable but symptomatic CAD, initiating a beta blocker is a good place to start. Lastly, we're going to discuss briefly who should receive invasive treatment strategies. In general, individuals with stable angina should be treated with medical management first. Revascularization via PCI or percutaneous coronary intervention or coronary artery bypass graft surgery, also known as a cabbage, is reserved for select patients with stable CAD. Patients with high-risk stress tests or a very high pretest probability of CAD will often be referred for coronary angiography. PCI may be performed at that time if a high-grade lesion is found. Patients who receive angiography may be recommended to consider cabbage if they have triple vessel disease, left main disease, significant disease that's not amenable to stenting, or multivessel disease in the setting of diabetes. All right, time for a medicine minute. The ischemia trial, which was published in 2020, compared an initial invasive treatment strategy with medical management in patients with stable CID and moderate to severe ischemia. Patients with significant left main disease on CT angiography or angiogram were excluded. There was no significant difference at the end of a median 3.2-year follow-up between the treatment groups for the primary outcome, which was a composite of death, MI, or hospitalization for unstable angina, heart failure, or resuscitated cardiac arrest. Interestingly, the invasive group had higher rates of periprocedural infarctions, but lower rates of spontaneous infarctions unrelated to procedures than the conservative group. All-cause mortality was similar between groups. The invasive treatment group reported significantly fewer anginal symptoms than the conservative treatment group. 
Therefore, consider management of patients similar to those in the ischemia trial with optimal medical therapy first. However, revascularization should be considered for patients with persistent or unacceptable anginal symptoms despite optimal medical therapy or with high-grade lesions such as left main disease. Thank you for listening to today's podcast entitled A Narrowing in the Pipes, an approach to stable coronary artery disease. This episode was written by Dr. Sierra Pendrith, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Kenneth Melvin, cardiology, and Drs. Jonathan Alon and Dr. Allison Lai, general internal medicine. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internetwork series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Sarma Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Internet Work. We hope to see you again soon.